And every week, uh, this opportunity, of even with this opportunity of extending and giving away of the resources, of extending the resources that we have in other places for God's good, is this exercise of trust. An exercise of trust in God with uh, everything we have, which is a lifelong process and incredibly difficult. But it's an act of worship. And for those of you who participate in this and, and God's growing your heart to trust him with everything you have, whether you have little or you have much, um, may God meet you in your present circumstances. And so let's pray. So Father, uh, we know we're on this pilgrimage of, of knowing you and trusting you and receiving your love and expressing it in the world. And so God, uh, may our grip be loosened and may the good that you continue to pour upon us in this world be increased. And so, God, may it be joy and love that opens our hearts and checkbooks and bank and hands to give to your purposes in this world, Lord, that you would move us to be generous. Would you extend, God, all of your goodness in the world? Would you extend these gifts today to meet needs and to extend your good in this world? We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So the ushers are going to come forward. We're going to pass that. And we're going to sing this, the doxology. It's another way just reminds us that this, this is worship uh, that we're doing. Is all of what we're doing today is in response to God's goodness. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. So we're in this series called Relent, and it's, uh, it's within this uh, time frame called Lent that the church has practiced, which was 40 days, counting up 40 days to Easter, not counting the Sundays, but of time of re- remembering, and Liz set this up beautiful for us last week. Before I step into this, I got an illustration that's going to seem kind of weird. So let, let me know. Uh, uh, well, so first off, if you guys ever, uh, majority of you have gone through weird things, hard things, sad, scary things that make you cry, tremble, that freak you out. And sometimes we can step into that stoic, but have you ever realized that when all of a sudden you step before someone, you actually get to step into that hard thing and you get to do it with community that you seem to crumble, the emotion, the, the expression comes out when you see a friend, someone you know. And, and, I, and I know many of you, I mean, we're, we're a neighborhood church, we're a community church, right? And so from the numbers of your faces, I know, uh, I've had the privilege to know parts of your stories, to know parts of the pain that potentially you're currently walking through or the pain that you've walked through recently from loss of loved ones, from a father, from a wife, from the brokenness of life, from, from battling cancer, or having loved ones battling cancer and having the fear that maybe cancer has come back, the loss of a daughter, from um, the fracturing of relationships with kids and desiring for those to rebuild, right? All of these things. 
And so all of us are on this journey of experiencing these sort of ups and downs of life. And then we step in on this pilgrim journey with each other, and at times we crumble. And so I'm, I'm that same. We are, we are on this pilgrim journey together, right, that each of us like. That there was a beautiful expression that said, oh, we are all beggars, but just announcing where to find bread. And so today I stand before you as a beggar announcing bread. For many of you know, Carmel's been sick since my wife, her name is Carmel, she's been sick since like December 30th, right? And it, and it exasperated uh, recently with some respiratory issues where she was having trouble breathing. And eventually, she, by God's grace, she got herself to the hospital and with an incredibly, the lowest oxygen level that they had probably ever even seen and they were going to intubate her uh, immediately, but eventually she got, breathe, you know, she was, her level was up and she was breathing and they kept her all week. And then on a Saturday after she'd been there for five or six days, all of a sudden she had respiratory failure. failure. And we thought everything was fine, right? And that, that's when they began to freak out and if you've ever seen um, people in the hospital freak out for people that you love, um, we already freak out, right? But when you see them start to sweat and shake, that's when, you, like, you know, right? That, that's when you really begin to kind of lose it, right? But by God's grace, they, they uh, get the tubes within her and she begins to go on a ventilator. And you're like, What? You know, for anyone who's seen anyone on a ventilator, that's, nobody wants to be on a ventilator, right? And that's why you, you can't breathe, and the ventilator breathes for you. And it's rare for a young person to be on a ventilator, but still, it's still necessary at times. Uh, so that happened, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago, or a week and a half ago on a Saturday. And as that happened... You know, friends came up, and I'm kind of holding together. My sister-in-law was with me, but as the friends popped in, I just melted by the fear and the uncertainty of, of knowing that my wife's life was spared within seconds, right, of not being able to breathe. Praise God for medical staff, for many of you who work within the medical um, profession, and give those life-saving benefits that had we not be in this age, we wouldn't be alive, God willing, she was, still, she was able to breathe, and within 12 hours, she was off the ventilator and breathing, and breathing um, by herself uh, again with the own use of her lungs, receiving oxygen and treatments. She remained in the hospital another week, receiving those kind of treatments, got released from the hospital about a week ago, um, but still can't breathe, really, right? And so we have oxygen in the home right now for her to breathe, and their only sort of uh, prognosis, or at least their only sort of attempt is saying, oh, you've got really bad bronchitis, you have asthma, you have respiratory issues. If you didn't think your asthma is an issue it is you have bad asthma and you have bronchitis you got to take it easy that that that's where we've been right and and when dan was talking about kindness uh, our community and our staff and our family has come around bringing meals and caring for harvest and so pray praise god for you so with that i, I come in and and, and want to share, but we, we have these seasons where we feel weak, and we have times when we feel strong, and, and um, I, uh, you, I may be like you in this, but I'm, I always want to feel strong, <laughs> right? I, I want to I be seen as strong, but I am not. I am weak. And so today, I stand as a pilgrim on this weak journey and saying, let me share where I hope to find life. Let me share of what I hope to do out of response out of today's teaching. 
These are things that I'm finding hard to do right now. I'm finding it hard to pray besides my, the easiest prayer, God of mercy, right? Jesus. And so um, I continue to invite my friends and family to say, um, may you have more breath than I do to pray the longer prayers because my prayers are only God of mercy. And church, I know you've been there. And so you might be there and you might even feel guilty for not being able to pray pray big prayers. So may God extend you grace to know that he hears the breath prayer of Jesus. And may you have people that surround you and grab a hold of your arms and support you. This is why we're here on this journey. So, so that's a little, that's a little, ugh, right? So here's my, here's my analogy as we step into this relent season. It's to cease resistance. So Carmel, as she stepped in and she got intubated where they stick the tube into your breathing pipe, right? And then they began to fill your lungs with air and you, breathe, you exhale on your own. She was able to do that. She had some lung capacity as it was going. And as you come out of that, usually they'll give you some sort of um, drugs to help with the pain and, or even a little bit of anesthesia, something to kind of keep you a little bit tired, right? Because it's not comfortable having a tube in your air pipe, Right? Not comfortable having a tube in your mouth and something that goes into your belly as you can expect. And that we're not used to something else breathing for us. Well, you're not breathing on your own. And so as this had just happened and it's being wheeled to the room in the ICU, I, I can see her kind of fighting. And one of my biggest fears, you know, when you when you as, if you've been with people and you've been the caregiver of someone, you don't want them to be in pain. And I stand with a recent number of you who sat with your spouses recently, as you might have, or their father recently, and your parents recently, knowing that their last days were coming. And the biggest thing is that we don't want them to be in pain, right? And so any kind of flinch or noise or jerks, we're just kind of wondering, are they okay, right? And she was kind of flinching and shaking and coughing and gagging a bit. And the staff who, who are wonderful, right, they're surrounding you and trying to ease your concerns and your fears, in these moments and saying, oh yeah, we're, tr- we're trying to help her be as comfortable as possible. But the challenge is, when they say, even especially when you're younger, the younger the patient who's ventilated, they'll fight it more. They'll fight this process of receiving breath as a gift of the hospital and they'll, they'll fight it. They're not used to it. And so then they'll try to give medicines or things that will weaken that so they will just receive what they need and be able to breathe. And so this year, we're, we're talking about ceasing resistance. And, and that's what we're talking about, right? That, that kind of resistance to the actually things that we need to live. We're not talking about ceasing resistance to the things that are harmful, that are dangerous. We're, no, we're talking about ceasing the resistance that we need, that we, when when we're resisting the things that will actually help us to flourish and sustain our life and help us go on. And the reality is, we do. We will resist. We will fight against. We'll kick against those things that will provide for us for life. We'll struggle for those things that we need. We really need to breathe the air of God. That struck me as I was, as I've been able to reflect over the last couple of weeks and on that experience. 
Our hope is that we would lower our resistance to God, to what he desires, to our life. And so, on this journey, as we're trying to lower our resistance, we're going to look, and as Liz said beautifully last week, we're looking at the life of Jesus and how he lowered his resistance. As he, was this, as he modeled for us what it was to cease resistance before the Father. And as we were praying this morning, Dan had this word. It was like a prophetic word. And the word was whatever. And whatever can be communicated in a couple different ways. There's a whatever. Right? Of just kind of like, what does it matter? Whatever. As we become burdened and weighted and pressed upon. Or it can be Whatever. And the ceasing resistance we're talking about is not this, well, whatever, but a God, whatever you have. That's what we're longing to be, that we can be open to what God has, receive what we need, to lower our resistance to God. Our struggles are real. And God's care and comfort is real. But for the reality is our resistance is usually to God's ongoing work in our heart. His ongoing work in us. And so we want to talk about ceasing resistance to God's work. Last week, Liz talked through uh, the temptations of Jesus. And I want, I want to go back there and just focus on one of them. I'm going to just going to take them the next three weeks, these three temptations, and look at each one. And then the, the next week, we're going to go into the garden where just before Jesus' death. And he prays in the garden of Gethsemane. Those are going to be the stories that we're looking at in Jesus' journey. And so this is in Matthew 4. Jesus has been baptized. He's entering into his ministry. He... Um, he really hasn't done uh, anything of significance in life, right? He was just a normal Galilean male under Roman occupation. He, he'd lived a normal life. In most cases, kind of irrelevant to the surrounding world around him. And at 30 years old, he steps into the Jordan where there was a prophet, John the Baptist, who had a big following, Tons of people were coming to him. All the area was coming to him. And Jesus steps to him and John has this revelation. Oh, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. And to this whole audience, it was the most relevant thing that, that could have been spoken to them. The one who would come and liberate the Jewish people. The king and the priest alike. And Jesus is baptized. And as Bob said, right, the voice of God does. Proclaims his affirmation and Immediately upon his baptism, Jesus goes into the desert for these 40 days. This is Matthew 4, verses 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yeah, we're okay. I can, there we go. You got me. 
Jesus, upon this baptism experience, immediately goes into the desert. Now, it says he goes in to be tempted. And that makes it sound like, oh, I'm going to go in the desert to be tempted. Now, he was led into the desert to be with God. That's where he was going to be. He was going to be with God in a season of solitude, a time of being with him. And so if you think about this season of solitude, um, what significant thing is Jesus going to accomplish in these 40 days of usefulness to those around him? Nothing. He is going to be with God. He's going to sit there and not eat or drink. But he goes there. And while he's there, he is tempted. Now, we talked about hearing the voice of God. Um, and we talked about the, that there are obstacles to hearing God. And we said some of these things, is there's actually a liar and there's a devil and there's a schemer. And so if we think, and if you've read this story before, and yet when you read it, and Jesus was tempted by the devil, and if you actually picture this cloaked figure who looks like the dark Sith or something showing up from Jesus with a flashlight in front of his face saying, Hello, Jesus, I'm the devil. I think you got it wrong. Because that's, that's, Jesus wouldn't be tempted by that at all. In the same way that God speaks to us through the promptings of his words and his voice, the devil has schemes and lies and deceptions. And so I believe that when the devil shows up to tempt him, it is not in physical form of some snake talking serpent, it's in this voice. Popping in. Like a true temptation. And so it comes and it tempts him as Jesus is going. And after Jesus is really hungry, and Liz did a beautiful job, and she's really hungry, this tempter, this voice comes and says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to come bread. Now on this was to fly his own desire and want as he's hungry. But if you, if you had a chance to hear Liz, she said, too, this, this is an idea of saying, goodness, if you could turn stones into bread, you would also fill the bellies of the, all the surrounding area. And this is a need because people were hungry. I mean, when Jesus did this, when he actually did supply bread for people, and there's two accounts of that, people from everywhere came. And they came back again and again and again and again, hoping he would give them bread. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're coming for bread, you know, right? So the, the, the idea of being bread was something incredibly useful, relevant for hungry people. It would be something that would change the world. Liz shared before us last week, they said, hey, if you, if you wanted to, in order to amass a people and create a movement and change the world and stuff, oh, feed the people and, and protect them. Right, then you'll win their hearts. They'll follow you, they'll fight for you, and they'll give, them every, they'll give you everything. And that would be a useful thing for people. So this tempter is coming to him in this time where he, Jesus is just being with the Father and saying, you know what, you could really do something useful now. Speak to these stones, turn them into bread. You could use this. You could actually meet all the needs of so many people. And if you hear she said, oh, the temptation was this for relevance. To be relevant. Jesus' answers, he pulls the scriptures. He's like, oh, humanity, or man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word, every revelation, everything that comes from God's mouth. That's where we live. That's what sustains us. 
And for us, if we want to cease, we want to cease resistance to God, we got to understand the same schemes that the devil did to tempt Jesus that he's going to tempt us with. And there can be no better season in this season of Lent to posture ourselves and to maybe to even to enter into the same posture of Jesus as he did as he entered into his ministry. The same scheme to cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, you could do something so much more beneficial. You could do something so much more useful. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do something? Why don't you be useful? Why don't you accomplish something? The same temptations are, are shouted and proclaimed to us to be relevant. Being able to do useful things. This is part of us that we can show things and we can do things, we can prove things, we can build things. But Jesus in his posture here, he seems to do something different. He seems to throw all this off and to embrace, to receive and to give love regardless of accomplishments. This temptation to be relevant, Jesus pushes it aside. This temptation to accomplish something is one of the biggest lies that so many of us battle. I mean, so much today in our news, and even though we've seen the last week with some of that college scandal kind of stuff, is about wanting to help people step into the best platform to be able to accomplish something, right? To be able to put them into the best possible scenario that they could actually do something and be somebody. And so many people today, I mean, the majority of us are we would call sort of digital, uh, digital immigrants. I mean, we weren't raised in the context of the internet and um, Facebook and, and all of this and Twitter, right? Where it's new to us and we struggle with it. And we, if you're like me, you have tons of anxiety over even posting anything on Facebook. You know where my anxiety comes from? I, I want it to be something relevant. I want it to be useful, Right? And there's people out there who make careers on influencing people. Right? They're called influencers. And the whole thing is to be relevant. Some actually long, long to be relevant, right? To be noticed and to accomplish something. The great need for many of us, like you like me, as a follower of Jesus, and the great message that I need to carry, and that maybe you need to carry, is that God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God has created us and redeemed us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love as a source of all human life. That's what we need to carry. And sometimes that voice, that message, accomplish something, seems to be the biggest message we hear. Um, there's, there's a reality in the world. When you talk about irrelevance, you hear a number of people are talking about the church in itself and the, the once the posture of power that the church as an organization held and it says, oh, the church is becoming irrelevant. Right? Especially for those who are in, in power within the church. And many are battling for that idea of relevance within, within the church. 
Uh, I, I read this article about the five worst professions to go into this last week um, that are not worth your money for the degrees and stuff that you have to get in there. And, you know, and one of them was, was pastor or associate pastor, right? Not worth it, right? Social worker, right, was another one. Um, working with children in the child care, the daycare thing, not worth your time or energy, not worth the education it takes to do it. Wow, right? What an awful message for so many of you who are giving your lives to the depressions of caring for the mental and emotional and spiritual needs of people through social work and health care and people to say, you know what, it's not, it, it, the, the, the cost to benefit ratio isn't worth it. The world cries out a different message and it's so often we can be tempted and pulled into that message. Accomplish something. Do something just a little bit more relevant and useful to the world. Make a bigger mark. The world around us says, Henry Nowen writes about this, you can take care of yourself. You don't need God, the church, or any help of others. We're in control. And if you're not, then you just need to work a little harder to get control. You just need a few more tips and techniques in order to get control. You need this person to read this book and then you would actually get control. And the reality is there is no such thing. There is no control. This is a lie. It's a deception. And the reality is, is that if we actually looked over to the world, we would see the ache and the despair and the heartache and the brokenness and the isolation and the anchor and, and the pit of all those who are who can, continuing to try to have control and accomplish something, but yet feel miserable. And yet there's this underlying temptation, this voice that continues to say, accomplish something. Prove yourself. Go do it. Earn this. Be relevant in the world. Now one talks about this. There's such a great need for a different story to be told. Because underneath all this desire for accomplishment, there is despair, right? Brokenness. A deep sense of uselessness fills the hearts of so many people. And it affects who they are. And allows them to feel, and they resist God. Because they feel like there's a God who resists them because they're not useful. We need people, as Christians and as people who are living in our culture, who can embrace our irrelevance. Who can embrace that? Not as a, um, something to be embarrassed by, but who can engage in seasons and times and practices of irrelevance. Who can live in that way of saying, we're actually not defined by our usefulness, but we're defined by the love of God that he pours upon us. And we need to be able to help people we need to be able to step in with solidarity to a whole world who feels that irrelevance. 
And so yet we're not trying to give them answers for greater relevance. We're trying to allow them to see the Jesus who steps into our irrelevance with his love. And so we can remain irrelevant but yet have self-confidence. Does that feel like a paradox to you or what? To remain irrelevant but yet have self-confidence of God's love. We don't got to prove anything. We don't have to accomplish something. We can be irrelevant but yet we can have confidence. See, the danger is, is that we, we have a desire, even here at Genesis, I have a desire for that God saying, oh, here's the message for the church, Ephesians 2.10. God has destined you through the work of Jesus Christ for good deeds, right? He's prepared you for the good works to come. And I believe that. But yet, it can cry so loud, oh, be useful, do something good, do it, do it, do it, find it, find that good works, find that destiny, make that destiny happen. Instead of knowing that, oh, that is a byproduct of the love of God, his gift to you, his breath upon you of his life. Last week as we stepped into this, the question that Liz brought before us, as she pulled into the story of Jesus or Peter, so the question to really to help us to engage in this temptation of relevance is the question of love. And Jesus asked this question to his disciples, to Peter, do you love me? Now, when I first heard that question, I'm kind of like, it felt like a weight almost, right? It's like, do you love me? It feels like a, a duty or a task or something, right? Like, you feel a little insecure. I don't know if you've ever had friends who, who say those words more easily, more quickly than you. And they come before you and they're a friend. They say, I love you. And you're kind of like, you don't know what to say and not to say it back as rude, right? Or yes, you feel it is, right? Anybody, does anyone feel that pressure? <laughs> for those who are really quick to express their words of love, and then for those who are more anxious with that, for whatever reason, right? I don't know why, right? We gotta, you know, it, it, talk to Ronnie, right? If you have, you're like me and you need help there, right? And he'll, he'll help us. But Jesus asked that question, do you love me? Put another way, the question could be, do you know the love of God? Do you know the incarnate God? I mean, do you know Jesus? That could be the question. Not just do you love me, but do you know me? Do you know Jesus? That's the question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know, do you know his love? If you had to answer that, how would you answer Now and writes this, in a world of loneliness and despair, there is an enormous need for men and women who know the heart of God. A heart that forgives, cares, reaches out and wants to heal. In that heart, there's no suspicion, no vindictiveness, no resentment, not a tinge of hatred. It's a heart that wants only to give love and receive love in response. And it's a heart, this is the heart of God, that suffers immensely because it sees the magnitude of human pain and the great resistance to trusting the heart of God who wants to offer consolation and hope. I love that. That, that grabbed me. The heart of God is one that suffers immensely because it sees the magnitude of human pain 
and the great resistance to trusting God, the heart of God who wants to offer consolation and hope. Boy, as Christians, we need to be those types of people who know the heart of God. Do you agree? And do you find yourself struggling, resisting to trust the heart of God who wants to offer consolation and hope to you? And if that is true, then we need to posture ourselves in the unconditional, unconditional and unlimited love of God. So John, the disciple of Jesus, said this. This is 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. And so Henry Nouwen, he, he's, just, he's a beautiful writer and an author, and he did all kinds of super accomplished things, but later in his life he found himself with those who were all meaningless. And he, and he felt like he learned this secret of irrelevance, this gift. But he said this, we love because he first loved us. And so they called, here's the first love. What's the first love? God's love for us. That's the first love. And sometimes I, I think, you know, there's other writings that says, oh, you've lost your first love, church. The first love, you might, yeah, so maybe that's true. You've lost it, meaning you've lost the reality and the knowledge of God's love. The first love is God's love for you. And our response is we love because of that first love. His love for us. That's where it is. And this battle, this battle of recognizing and finding our identity in that spot is this part of Jesus heading into the desert into irrelevance to sit upon and to realize and to breathe in the first love of God. God's love for him. This oneness that they had. Now the second love is our love, right? It's in response. It's our love for God. It's our love for one another. Those are one in the same as Jesus said. But our first love, the first love is God's love for us. The second love is our response. Now you understand, God's first love has no shadow. It's not broken. It's not tainted. It's not flawed. Do you understand the second love, our response, our love to God and our love for one another? Oh, there's a shadow to it. It's broken. And every one of you have experienced the weakness and the brokenness of second love, right? And it wrecks us. Life is anchored in the knowledge of God's first love. Yesterday, we did the funeral for Bill McPhee. He was 93 years old. Some of you in here knew him, knew him well. He was a friend. He was one who walked in the journey. You knew him as a partner. And, and he was buried, and he lived 93 years, right? I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful time to remember and to mourn. He was a sailor in World War II. How crazy is that, right? And as I shared at the funeral yesterday, Bill and his wife Ruth, on their prayer request every week, wrote out their prayer request was world peace. You know, when, they, when you do those, like, like it's, it was almost cliche, right? It's like almost a joke from those like beauty pageant things, you know, and they ask them that question of like, what's your hope for the world, right? I don't even know what the question is. And they say, world peace, and everybody kind of laughs, right? Because 
Not last, but it's almost considered a dumb answer. Yet when Bill and Ruth would write it, it was not a dumb answer for one, somebody who fought in World War II and who lived 90 years old, right? They understood that that would be the gift to world peace. Um, Bill would continue to pray the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23. And when I was with him a couple weeks before his death, he told me he was meditating on Psalm 23. What is Psalm 23 about? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside, right? He leads me uh, besides green pastures, right? It's about the first love. It's about God's love for us. He was anchoring. He was being anchored in the first love of God. And so, let me just say, all right, well, well, how do we find ourselves anchored in this first love? So I believe for us to be or to, to do so, there's some gifts of people, of other pilgrims who have gone before us. They were called the mystics. And I want to give us two practices that in this season of Lent that we can enter into, that we can say, oh, that we could step into patterns of irrelevance, that we can embrace that, of not the temptation that says, accomplish something, do something, prove yourself, build something, move something, but one that says, oh, no, I'm actually not going to do anything. I'm just going to be present with God, with him, and in his love. And the mystics did this, and they had different forms of prayer that allowed them to do so. And I want to invite you into two practices to do so. Uh, if you're kind of like, if you feel this ache, and you continue to feel that temptation, I do. I felt it all week. I felt it all last week. I feel it all the time. I feel it today. I feel that temptation. I want to invite you. I challenge you. It's an invitation, but it may feel like a challenge because these prayers are incredibly simple, but they're incredibly hard. But I want to invite you into these prayer practices, these two patterns of contemplative prayer. Through contemplative prayer, we can keep ourselves from being pulled from one urgent issue to another and from being strangers to our own heart and God's, God's heart. Do you feel like you're a stranger to God's heart? <laughs> that's, a, that's an awesome question, isn't it? Are you a stranger to God's heart? And are you a stranger to your own heart? And I could say, you know what? I think I am. Yeah. And these practices of contemplative prayer can allow some grounding to not be a stranger any longer. Right? That welcomes us to this reality that God is present and that he loves us. And you don't actually have to do anything. You can be Contemplative prayer deepens us, deepens in us the knowledge that we are already free and that we have already found a place to dwell and that we already belong to God even though everyone and everything around us keeps suggesting the opposite. So here are the patterns. The first one that I want to invite is one called the Jesus Prayer. And some of you might know this contemplative prayer. The Orthodox use it to pray. The Eastern Orthodox use it. They have a necklace. It's called a prayer rope. And it has a, they use it with this little prayer rope. I had one. I lost it. That tells you how well I've been doing with my prayer rope, right? I ordered another one just yesterday on Amazon, right? So if you're tactile and you want to hold something, you can get a prayer rope, right? Like me, I like, I, I'm tactile, man. I want, I want something I can look at, I can touch. Uh, and they would just touch the beads, or these little knots, and they would pray this prayer, the Jesus prayer, Right? Here it is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's an incredibly biblical prayer. 
the scriptures, the encounters with Jesus. These are stories in there. Each, each section of it, right? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, a declaration. I mean, Peter's announcement of Jesus when Jesus said, who am I? He's like, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. It's this declaration of who Jesus is and then, have mercy on me, a sinner. There was a blind man named Bartimaeus who wandered around and he shouted out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. When the tax collector in this parable that Jesus told, he said he beat his chest and he said, have mercy on me, a sinner. These people found favor with God. It's a beautiful prayer. This is the, the prayer. And within this prayer, uh, they would just kind of pray it. As a, not as accomplishing anything, but kind of as a, as a line again and again. Jesus, Son of God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The primary aim of the prayer is most Compelling, it says, it's to awaken the heart to the presence of Christ and to be enlivened by his love. It's to awaken ourselves to the presence of God and to be alive to his love. The uh, Byzantine Christians would practice this and they would practice it in their breathing. And so I've got a slide of the breathing prayer. Here's how you would do it to breathe this prayer, Right? And so here's how you can do it, and it's just so helpful. And fear, and anxiety, and despair, and temptation. And so, as this prayer says, we would pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, slowly as you inhale. It's a silent prayer. So let, let's just practice this, right? So we'll practice this first. Inhale. Exhale. Thank you, Jesus, for being able to do that easily, Right? Inhale, exhale. Now to pray this, on the inhale, we would inhale, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Ready? So let's inhale. And on the exhale, we'll pray, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, on the inhale, have mercy on me, a sinner, exhale. Right? As we breathe and to be mindful of God's presence, his mercy, and his goodness. So, let's practice that for 10 breaths or so, okay? Just sort of settle in, breathe and pray silently as you breathe.
This is a prayer that you can breathe through the day. It's a prayer as the Byzantine, the, these monks or these mystics would do. They would take their prayer beads of 100 beads and just, they would, they would pray it and they would, they would break it up with the Lord's Prayer on like the 20th prayer. It, there, there's no right or wrong way of doing it. But my encouragement, if that's something that you could do, that you could remember, and you're like, oh, goodness. It's, you're not being invited to accomplish anything, and any kind of thought that presses in or that says, this is stupid or worthwhile or worth, right? Like, do something, right? You can just continue to meditate on each line. Let every truth of it wash over you. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it together with others, right? But let that prayer wash. Enter into a time of irrelevance, not trying to accomplish anything but being present to God and his love, his mercy being with you. It's present. You don't have to experience anything, but you can just pray it. The other one is called the centering prayer. And the centering prayer is uh, even more simple because it is about just sort of being present to God's love, trying to accomplish nothing. In the centering prayer, we have no agenda except to be present and available to God. Our purpose isn't to have an experience or to make anything happen. How freeing is that? The goal is not for you to have some mystical experience or make anything happen. It's just to be present to God. That's it. God is already with us. And we simply want to be present to God and give ourselves to God in love. Here are the four steps. These are simple. They are not easy. Right? Does that make sense? First one, choose a sacred word as a symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. It could be God, it could be love, it could be peace, Jesus, trust, being, right? It's just a simple word. Um, and as you do it, you're meant to hold it lightly like a feather, right? Like a, like a feather hitting a piece of cotton. That's how you're going to hold your word, not in anxiety, not in a mantra-like, but it just be like, Jesus, just being open to his presence, like a whisper. So you find that word, right? It could be peace, right? Whatever that word is, you can invite God, God, Holy Spirit, come and give me a word, right? A, a word that, that could be. So you do that, that's one. Two, you sit comfortably with your eyes closed and you settle briefly, silently, introduce the sacred word as a symbol of your consent to God's presence and action within. It's a word of consent to God's presence and action within. You're consenting, right? You're kind of, Ceasing resistance. Jesus. Your consent, right? Ah, to his love and his presence within. Sit there, right? And then when engaged with your thoughts, and this includes sensations, feelings, images, concepts, return ever so gently to the sacred word. So just don't say the, say the word continuously, right? And then the fourth one is at the end of the time of prayer, and they encourage like 20 minutes. Again, that sounds almost funny, right? It's like 20 minutes. You know, sitcoms are like 22 minutes, right? You know, not including the commercials. But to sit there and to do so, it just ends with silence for two minutes. These are two practices that you can engage into um, in this season of Lent, and, and I want to offer you an invitation to, to practice this as a way of allowing the real presence and the love of Jesus to come and to meet us. So let me pray. 
Father, this is a real temptation that bombards us to accomplish and to be relevant. Have mercy. Awaken us. Awaken us, Jesus. Awaken the Spirit of God to your presence and to your love. Free us to the first love. Awaken us to your love. That we might be free like Jesus to respond then in everything without the pressure to accomplish, but awakened and moved and motivated by your love. Come and meet my brothers and sisters, Lord, as we are on this pilgrim's journey to receive, to cease our resistance to your love. Come and bring your healing and your freedom and your presence, Lord, to your children. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to close with just even a song that is a declaration of God's love for us. And so if you want to sing it, you can. But sometimes that even feels like we're trying to accomplish something, right? If you need to, breathe in this song. If you want to express it back in words and melody, do so. For those of you who love to sing as an expression of that, let your voices be loud around to the others so they could hear the truth of this beautiful song of God's love. So in it, I, I invite you to stand and to receive this first love of God. And if you have and you're only overflowing, to give back to him an expression of your love for him. So let's sing this song and as we do and as it closes, we will dismiss.
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great uh, go in the peace of Jesus. Jesus.